Good afternoon, I'm John Falchicchio, Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development, and welcome to the Recovery Weekly Check-In. Uh, the team caught me uh, about to take a drink, uh, but we're ready to get started. Uh, so thank you everybody to, uh, for joining us today. Uh, before we begin, uh, we wanted to just remind businesses uh, to be sure to apply for uh, this round of the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, Mayor Bowser created uh, PPPReady.com uh, to help local businesses with the application process. Uh, we have frequently asked questions um, and a, a wealth of information on uh, that site. So PPPReady.com. Uh, uh, you probably know, we've talked about this before, in 2020, uh, DC businesses and organizations were able to access $2.2 billion uh, in PPP uh, loans. Uh, it's a forgivable loan product, uh, and so the period for forgiveness has actually begun as well. And so businesses and organizations that got PPP in the first round are already in the process of getting forgiveness for that round. Uh, but we also invite those who did receive it in the first round or those who didn't uh, to apply for this current round that's open right now. Uh, President Biden, as you may know, visited a D.C. hardware store uh, on Bladensburg Road today to promote PPP. Uh, so I'm proud to say that I am also a PPP pusher, uh, along with Mayor Bowser, and we want you to look at the resources uh, to answer any questions you have on pppready.com. Uh, and then I want to bring in our first guest. Uh, today we're going to continue to celebrate Women's History Month uh, as we uplift and meet women uh, in the philanthropic sector uh, that are making equitable economic investments in our community. Uh, but first, as part of uh, our month-long celebration and discussion, uh, every week in the month of March, uh, we'll highlight an unsung hero, uh, or excuse me, an unsung hero, uh, by uh, spotlighting their work and dedication uh, to the residents and communities in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, so today, our unsung hero is Terry Robinson. Uh, Terry is a uh, respiratory therapist at Children's National Hospital. Terry, welcome. Thank and uh, we ask you uh, to share with us today a little bit about yourself uh, and your work uh, and what have been some of the personal and uh, uh, professional challenges and opportunities uh, and wins uh, during this unprecedented time. Uh, so with that, I want to turn it over uh, to Terry. Thank you. Thank you. And first, let me start by saying I am honored um, to be considered an unsung hero. Um, all too often, we don't consider ourselves heroes. We just like to think that we go and we do what we are called to do. Um, so I've been in a respiratory therapist for, this year will be 38 years. Um, I was a young mother and had a child that was an asthmatic, a bad asthmatic, starting at the age of about five months. And then a young mother, you, you don't have any idea as to what is going on. You really don't know how to take care of a child, and you definitely don't know how to take care of a sick one, an asthmatic. And so as a result, I became a respiratory therapist. So I like to tell people, um, my daughter, uh, she made me the RT that I am today. Um, I, en I enjoy this work. I love doing this. Um, I love being able to treat my patients as they're my own, actually, um, because when they're my patients, 
I'm um, and I'm RT. So yeah, and in in addition to that, um, as a young mom, you're always afraid when you're in that position because you don't know what's going to happen. And so I'm also on the the parental side. So I like to be able to offer a calming um, and supportive effect for for my parents who really don't they don't have any idea. They don't have any idea. And so now that we're in this pandemic, things have really gotten rough. Um, I'm also a Ward 7 resident, and I like to call that. I don't like calling it an underserved community, but I feel like it is. So a lot of my patients who come from Ward 7 and 8, um, for those that will come to the hospital, it's always a challenge. They're afraid to come. Um, they're embarrassed to come. They don't, the parents don't want to be judged. And so I find myself just sitting with the parents in addition to being able to take care of my patients. This has been a long road. In doing so, um, the reason that I became an RT uh, passed away as a result of having an asthma attack. And so it, it, it holds a special place in my heart to be able to, to take care of and to nurture, um, you know, my patients. Um, I don't know. What else can I say? I love this. If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't change anything. A lot of the work I do, I tell people, they're like, how do you live with being on a mask, with wearing a mask all the time? Well, pretty much all of my patients are on isolation. So I'm always in a mask. So it's okay. I'm masking up a little bit differently now, but nevertheless. Um, some of the things that I feel like would be beneficial to my patients, and probably a little economically sound, um, would be to be able to provide them with better food choices. I live in a food desert. Food choices. Very important to good health. Um, being able to have them have access to other health care things that they may need without having to leave Southeast D.C. and travel all the way to children. So we've got a lot of work to do, but it's all doable. And I look forward to just being able to continue uh, to do what I do. Thank you. Well, thank you, Terry. I think everybody's giving a round of applause to Terry. <laughs> Uh, Terry, uh, there are some flowers there uh, for you that we wanted to have as a token of our appreciation. Uh, we're also going to have uh, uh, for you that we'll send to you a Made in D.C. gift bag, uh, so we'll make sure we get that to you. Terry, we can't thank you enough uh, for the work that you do, but also adding your voice. Uh, a lot of our work is on addressing a lot of the problems that you just highlighted, uh, on making sure that people have access to food, that people have access to health care. Uh, it's something that uh, we in this office uh, and Mayor Bowser has really uh, told us to come to work each day uh, with a vigor 
uh, to address it, just like you do for your patients. So we don't get to see the people we uh, help and are trying to advance every day. Mm -hmm. So bringing your story to us today uh, is really moving. So we thank you uh, thank for you. being with us. Uh, we're going to uh, continue our conversation. Uh, we're going to ask folks who are watching at home uh, that may be on the phone line, if you have a question, uh, if you have a comment that you want to add to the conversation, all you have to do is press zero. Uh, that allows our uh, screeners to bring you into the conversation, uh, and it allows us to uh, get some perspective, uh, just like we heard from uh, Terry today. Uh, so want to do that. And then on social media, if you're uh, on Facebook, just obviously put uh, your comments or questions in the chat, uh, and we'll see that there. Uh, you could use the hashtag CCHope on Twitter uh, in order to join the conversation and ask a question. Uh, so we want to thank uh, our panelists for joining us. Uh, the first of which is uh, Jennifer Lockwood Shabbat. Shabbat? Shabbat. Shabbat. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to thank her for joining us. Uh, she has led uh, the uh, Women, excuse me, the Washington Area Women's Foundation for 13 years. Uh, and I'm not sure that uh, 2020 or 2021 have been like any other year for you and your time uh, with the foundation. But talk to us about uh, what the foundation is doing and how uh, they're helping folks. Uh, navigate the pandemic. Great. Thank you, Deputy Mayor. I really appreciate it. And um, Terry, I just want to say congratulations. You and I had a chance to talk before and meet. Um, and I just, I honor you for your work. And I, I actually feel like I, you should take the rest of my time to talk more about um, the work that you've done and everything that you're contributing to the community. So thank you for everything. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jennifer Lockwood-Shabbat. I'm President and CEO of Washington Area Women's Foundation. Uh, I'm really honored to be here today um, with a distinguished panel and my colleagues from other philanthropic organizations as well. Um, it's really fitting that we're actually having this conversation at the onset of Women's History Month because I think you can't really talk about an equitable recovery without focusing very specifically on women and girls and women and girls of color. Um, I wanna give a little bit of background on the Washington Area Women's Foundation before I get into my remarks. We're a community supported foundation that invests in the power of women and girls of color across the Washington DC region. We open doors to opportunities through both grant making and advocacy. Specifically, we partner with donors and community stakeholders to invest intentionally in women and girls of color. We promote philanthropy that propels racial, gender, and economic justice. And lastly, we advance policy agendas that are created by and for women and girls of color to dismantle sexist and racist systems. Um, when COVID hit, last year, I think we all came to an understanding very early on that women and girls were bearing the brunt of the crisis. Um, and really two crises, right? There was the global health pandemic with COVID-19 and there's also systemic racism. I wanna share just a couple of facts um, with folks in, in case um, this might be new information for some, likely not, um, but Black and Latinx women face the highest poverty rates in D.C. with 27% of Black women and 16% of Latinx women experiencing poverty compared to just 7% of white women. Two out of every three low-wage workers um, in our region are women. Most of them are immigrant and non-white. 
Most of our care workers are women of color with earnings that sometimes are as low as just over $13 an hour. 90% are elder care workers, 75% are child care workers. Lastly, I think we saw countless articles and news reports about the just incredible toll that caregiving writ large was taking on women very early on in the pandemic and continued over the last year. Today, the data is even more telling. Nationally, over 11 million women have lost their jobs. This has now been coined the, C the she session. Another 2.6 million women have decided to leave the workforce altogether. In December of last year, 100% of the jobs that were lost uh, were to women. And when you analyze that a bit further, it is predominantly Black and Latinx women who lost jobs while white women gained. Specific here to DC are our early educators. So folks who are caring for our young children and educating them. Um, they have a tremendously high poverty rate of 34.4%. And that's much higher than DC workers in general at just 12.4% and almost six times higher than teachers in the K through eight system. In terms of how we thought about our response and investments during uh, the pandemic, first, I do want to commend our colleagues. You're gonna hear in just a moment from Tony Wellens from the Greater Washington Community Foundation. And we were a part of um, a collaborative effort to think about philanthropic investments across the community with the Community Foundation's Emergency Response Fund. I know Tony is gonna talk about this, but I really do wanna lift it up as a shining example of partnership and collaboration and something that could be um, replicated uh, across the board. In terms of the Women's Foundation, we really took some time to understand what was happening in our community specific to women and girls and women and girls of color. And that evolved a lot of listening and learning. So we undertook um, our work at the direction of black, indigenous and other people of color, community leaders on the ground to really learn and understand from them what was happening, what were they seeing in their neighborhoods, in their communities? What did they feel was the number one response? What did they need as leaders? What did they need as organizations? What were women and girls facing? And then we really directed our resources as a response to what we were hearing from our community leaders. A couple of things, we prioritized investing in smaller organizations, so organizations with budgets of under a million dollars. Oftentimes they lacked access to, to capital, um, particularly in that very early stage of emergency response. We prioritized investing in organizations that were led by women of color. I'm proud to say that 75% of our investments supported women of color led organizations. One of the important changes we met was um, really changing our support to be general operating support. So listening and understanding leaders and organizations know best how to spend the resources that are provided to them. So rather than dictating that, we did general operating support and allowed leaders to make those decisions on their own. We also worked to reduce as many barriers as possible to accessing those resources. And that resulted in a fundamental change in how we engage in our grant making practices. We focused specifically on investments in a couple of issue areas. The first was focusing on survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. We knew that there was a great need, particularly as we were in the early stages of sheltering in place. If someone was sheltering with an abuser, sort of how, to, how do you think about providing services and getting them um, the help that they need? 
We also made investments in the care workforce with direct cash assistance. And then finally, we really supported advocacy efforts because we knew that there was both the direct service provision, but also the need to advocate as well. Through our Stand Together Fund, we invested over $366,000 to 21 organizations. The first round focused in on providing culturally specific support to survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. The second round, as I mentioned, was direct cash assistance to care workforce, and that included family child care providers, early childhood educators, in-home health aides, and health assistants. Our third round included investments to organizations focused on advocacy, safety, and violence prevention. As we think about or talk about a more equitable recovery, one of the things I think is really important to focus on specifically for women and girls are investments in our early care and education system. DC has a tremendous commitment to building up the overall education infrastructure. Uh, and our public education system certainly has a very solid foundation to build upon. However, we don't have a similar infrastructure for our early care system. And we don't have the level of public investment that's needed to ensure that infant and toddler classrooms will be able to reopen or stay open to ensure early educators will be available to return to work. The importance of early care and education for our young children is, has been well documented at this point. Um, and yet, as a society, we don't necessarily value early educators um, in the same way that we value higher education. Early education is a career that's dominated by women of color who are making poverty level wages. Childcare costs for our families are exorbitant. And families have really reached, reached a tipping point, a breaking point, um, if you will. A return to work for women um, is simply not possible without having childcare available. And many early care educators are being forced to make very real economic decisions for themselves and their families. So as we think about equitable recovery, um, my hope is that we'll have a, a deep conversation and dialogue about prioritizing women and girls of color and the need for greater public investment to create an early care education infrastructure that meets both our economic and our education needs. So I'll close there. Um, thank you again for having me, and I look forward to hearing from our other panelists as well. Great, and why don't we get right to it? Uh, you alluded to the work of the Greater Washington Community Foundation, uh, which is led uh, by Tonya uh, Wellens, and so I want to turn it to her uh, to talk about some of that great work. Great, good afternoon, great. everyone. And thank you for having me. And yes, it's fantastic to be on the panel with both Jennifer and DeConte. Both are, are women who I respect greatly and have had the pleasure of working very closely with. So I'll just um, state again, I think what is perhaps obvious now, but always worth noting that even before uh, the COVID crisis, much of our region was struggling. Uh, we at the Community Foundation had uh, I would say in January, just completed survey work with Gallup to listen to and understand the needs of, uh, of residents across socioeconomic lines uh, and racial lines and geographic lines in our region. And uh, one of the key findings were that nearly one in every five residents in our region had indicated that they could only make it for less than a month uh, if they'd lost their current sources of income. 
this was in January, and um, so said, so done uh, in March when the pandemic uh, hit and job loss uh, happened very, very, very quickly. Nearly one third of every resident was either very worried or slightly worried about making their rent and mortgage payments on a good day. And um, a, a data point from Prosperity Now indicated that one out of two households in um, households of color in DC lived in a state of perpetual financial insecurity, um, even pre-pandemic. And we know that this pandemic has caused even more uh, debt, uh, housing and food insecurity. So next slide. I am very pleased that on March 13th in 2020, the philanthropic community began to organize very quickly, uh, immediately following stay-at-home orders that were being issued around the entire region. Uh, we made a deliberate decision that we were going to uh, work together. We learned a lot in prior crises in our region, from the 9-11 uh, crises to the economic crises in 2008 and 2011, and then most recently the federal shutdown in 2019. It taught us that if we were to be uh, responsive and good stewards of philanthropic capital, then we needed to, um, to work together. So we did that. We launched the COVID-19 response fund that was housed at the Community Foundation, alongside other funds that were housed, as Jennifer mentioned, at the Washington Area Women's Foundation and the United Way, and some of our Community Foundation peers um, in, the, in Northern Virginia. But the goal was really to, uh, to align our strategy to lower barriers and to do as much as we possibly could to respond to the needs of, of members of our, of our community, to respond to both the urgent health needs, but also the economic needs. And to make sure that we, uh, because history has taught us this, uh, targeting historically underserved and disproportionately impacted uh, communities, which in our region are black and brown people. Next slide. I'm very happy to, to share that we, uh, the philanthropic community stepped up, uh, both institutional philanthropy, individual philanthropy, and corporate philanthropy really, really uh, raised the bar when it came to uh, making sure that members of this community had what they needed to be able to respond uh, to the crisis at hand or had much, um, most of what they needed. We raised over $10.5 million raised and deployed uh, $10.5 million through, um, I think it was close to 4,000 individual gifts. Some of the gifts were as small as $5 and as large as a million. Uh, we funded 300 organizations across the region. 57% um, of them were led by people of color. We, made an in we had an intentional racial equity lens in, uh, in making sure that nonprofits that were led by people of color were undergirded through the pandemic alongside uh, many of our tried and true um, mostly larger nonprofits, in order to serve the broader community. And then we were able to, um, to galvanize either through corporate funds uh, being established at the Community Foundation or individual restaurants establishing funds to uh, provide support to their employees. We galvanized over $30 million in parallel funds that were housed and deployed um, through the Community Foundation. Our partners were many. Next slide. Um, we had the distinct pleasure of not only working hand in lockstep with other members of philanthropy, but also very closely with local government and our local government partners. Um, from, uh, so of course, the DC 
DC Interagency Council on Homelessness, the DC Workforce Investment Council, um, other uh, DC Cares was an amazing partner with us in terms of the distribution of cash to um, to um, undocumented worker undocumented worker, workers and workers who were not eligible for other forms of resources. Just a number of both public sector and private sector partners really stepped up. On, I think almost every uh, major company. Uh, of course, including J.P. Morgan Chase, either stepped up in partnership with the Community Foundation or on their own to be able to respond to the needs uh, of our community, to the urgent needs of our community. Uh, I think uh, one of the other sort of major heroes of the crisis were the nonprofits and how they were able to pivot so very quickly. Uh, we spent a good amount of time, and this was, I think, an important lesson for philanthropy, uh, listening to what our nonprofits uh, had to tell us so that we could respond um, based on their direct interactions and knowledge of community needs. And so we worked really closely with the myriad of, uh, of DC nonprofits. I'll just name a few. The Low Income Investment Fund was really, really helpful in uh, providing um, support to child care providers. Capital Area Asset Builders was a great intermediary partner uh, in terms of getting cash to people who need it. We had to really rally using philanthropic capital to get cash in the hands of, of our, our, our low-income neighbors before the unemployment systems were up and rolling. Um, people, were, people lost jobs immediately and needed to have access to resources, and I just really want to, um, to give huge kudos to the nonprofit community and the philanthropic community for being flexible and responsive to what our community needed at the time. Next slide. You know, we've been collecting some very early data on, um, on our impact, uh, and I think it's worth noting that we've so far been able to track that we've served over 240,000 people in our region. Uh, nearly 90,000 uh, were people served in the District of Columbia, um, upwards of several hundred thousands of meals that were served, pro provided PPE. Um, provided legal assistance and IT support. We did quite a bit of work to, uh, with the DC Education Equity Fund to make sure that kids as they transitioned uh, from um, in-person school to remote learning had access to tablets and the internet and all of the other things that they needed. And so again, I just wanted to take the moment to acknowledge, particularly at the one-year anniversary, nearly at the one-year anniversary of, um, of this pandemic, how much the community stepped up to respond. I'll close with just a few remarks about what an equitable recovery will need to, um, to look like. Next slide. Uh, I think the emphasis, of course, right now is on uh, vaccination distribution. Uh, we should not get comfortable in, um, you know, in, even in the amazing work that we've done so far, but to know that communities um, that have uh, reservations through, due to historic practice, um, will need to have more support and comfort when it comes to, um, to, to taking the vaccination. So not uh, placing a, a specific focus on um, the distribution and I would say the ongoing uh, public health and persistent public health needs and challenges of communities of color. Um, even as we're getting a lot more excited about the economy reopening, it will reopen far more quickly for some than it will for others. And so, um, continuing to focus on basic needs like 
cash assistance, childcare, health, and housing are going to be uh, incredibly important if we are to have an equitable recovery. I think in the, you know, in the immediate and longer term, we're going to have to spend a lot more time thinking about how we um, promote and restore personal agency and grow household wealth. Um, the wealth gap in our region continues to widen, and this crisis has not um, has only exacerbated that um, that gap. With um, many of the community foundations, you know, partners and fund holders uh, doing exceptionally well during this time, and many of the communities that we serve faring the worst. Uh, and we're just going to have to do more to promote and grow household wealth. Uh, and invest in the neighborhoods and the community institutions that have been hardest hit if we are to uh, to pursue a an equitable recovery. And so the, I'll leave my remarks there and look forward to um, to this, the discussion. Thank you all very much for all that the city has done um, to date in responding to this pandemic and to the recovery efforts that are currently underway. Well, thank you for that. And you mentioned uh, one of the, your great partners, uh, which is also a partner of the district, uh, and that's J.P. Morgan Chase. And uh, we have with us Stephanie uh, Men's Cole, who's the Vice President of Global Philanthropy uh, at J.P. Morgan Chase. So we want to bring her into the conversation now. Yeah, and once again, thank you. Um, thank you for having me. And also, it's truly an honor to sit on this panel with um, philanthropic leaders like Tanya and Jennifer, who are really thinking um, critically about the role that philanthropy needs to play at this moment in time. Um, you know, I, I want to start actually with just recognizing that um, philanthropy really is a resource provider. Um, and it's our nonprofit partners, again, which Tonya mentioned, that have truly been the heroes in helping us pivot, think through strategies and solutions that truly deliver um, deliver recovery, stabilization at, at this moment in time. Um, and I, I can't thank our partners enough um, for guiding us and informing the way that we show up in this community. Um, so at J.P. Morgan Chase, our focus in the foundation is really on inclusive growth and in this moment in time, inclusive recovery. Um, we really focused our investments uh, around supporting small businesses, particularly those led by diverse entrepreneurs, financial health, neighborhood revitalization, um, slash affordable housing, um, as well as workforce development and really thinking about career pathways for young people in the district. I want to, uh, you know, before we got into this moment in time almost a year ago, um, you know, Urban Institute, uh, had done an excellent study back in 2016 about the wealth disparities within the greater Washington region, um, and particularly for black and brown households, um, where white households had 81 times more wealth than black households um, in our region. And that disparity is accelerating and increasing. So our philanthropic strategy um, and also our firm-wide strategy uh, now through Path Forward is really focusing on bringing the tools and resources that address the racial wealth divide. Um, and our immediate response in the district um, 
uh, in early on in the um, during the pandemic was really focused on small businesses. Early evidence showed that black businesses were and many, you know, many of our black businesses that are institutions in the city were struggling, um, and that DC actually was seeing hits to black businesses uh, at a greater rate than the rest of the country. Um, uh, the deputy mayor mentioned the payment protect, protection program, and um, an aspect of that program, an early aspect, was need for a financial institution relationship. We quickly mobilized with the Minority Depository Institution, a black bank uh, known as Harbor Bank, to set, up, um, to set up a pathway around payment protection that didn't require a banking relationship and navigated more diverse entrepreneurs to be able to access those resources. Um, it was in collaboration with Sean Combs um, and Combs Enterprises. It's known as ourfairshare.org. And I'll make sure if there is a resource page that you're able to access, particularly as we're seeing the new round arriving. Um, and what the ability actually to detach it from the structures that were creating obstacles for diverse entrepreneurs really ensured that more entrepreneurs were able to access the necessary resources. But certainly we know that wasn't enough. And we worked with our partners um, our community development financial institution partners like WACUS, Latino Economic Development Center, as well as the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development to really um, provide the gaps and resources um, around 0% um, uh, loans or uh, recoverable grants, as well as to help businesses think through their pivot strategy locally. Um, since our initial dollars out the door uh, really focused on immediate crisis response, the firm has responded to the much wider crisis of disparity that Jennifer mentioned. That we um, are now that that kind of been brought to the forefront around racial disparities and equity um, that that cannot no longer wait to be addressed. Uh, so a few months ago, the firm made a $30 billion commitment to racial equity, and this is an across-the-firm initiative. So that has everything to do with um, our lending through to the work we're doing in philanthropy. And I'm excited to be working with some of our new partners. Actually, uh, we had a new community manager start today as we really gear up um, and think through the deployment and support that's needed uh, around um, the execution of $30 billion worth of capital and resources. Um, about 10 days ago, we announced our first um, efforts around the $30 billion and how it shows up in D.C. I mentioned that we work really closely with our small business partners within the district. Um, and about three years ago, we set up an effort known as the Entrepreneurs of Color Fund, which is a fund that really seeks to address access to capital um, and really provide a pipeline of resources from micro-enterprises to, um, to uh, more mid-market businesses to be able to access the capital they need for growth. This city has incredible opportunities and we're, we're not able to tap um, into them as people of color if uh, we don't have the same type of um, access to resources um, capital as well as market. Um, 
So through our partner, CNHED, or the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development, uh, uh, we helped support alongside uh, DEMPAD as well, and uh, the Anchor Partnership Program. Um, and this has been a critical mechanism at this point in time. So the Anchor Partnership Program supports um, diverse suppliers of universities and hospitals. And as you can imagine, uh, hospitals in particular, their supply chains localized um, at the beginning of the crisis when, um, when global supply chains were disrupted and also their needs, needs expanded. And this created a real opportunity for diverse uh, businesses as well. Um, we expanded our um, Entrepreneur of Color program nationally. It lands in uh, five cities currently, um, including Washington, D.C., um, and provided $42 million of low-cost capital and philanthropy um, to our national provider known as the Local uh, Initiative Support Corporation, or LIFT. Um, and we're looking, and at this moment, we're deploying capital through um, our local partners, LEDC, WAKEF, and Capital Impact Partners to diverse suppliers. If you're interested in that, um, there's also a website that's set up to um, take intake there. It's Entrepreneurs of Color Fund DC. Um, at .org. And again, um, I'm happy to provide the resources, um, provide the, the link for the resource page. Um, I will, uh, I, I also wanted to note something that Ms. Robinson said and, um, and something Jennifer said about the access to amenities, well, whether it's healthy food, and also for women of color um, in this city, access to maternal health. And so one of the things through our $30 billion, I mentioned it's um, across the firm initiative, our community development banking team uh, working with MDI here in the district, City First, as well as Harbor Bank, um, made a new market tax credit investment of $20 million um, to Community of Hope to really expand uh, access to maternal health and birthing uh, resources. Um, and this is in line with the mayor's wider objective to support particularly um, black female maternal health where we see a greater mortality rate than anywhere else in the country. Um, and I'll, I'll end actually with a story about, um, about a young woman business owner because I think the solution about driving our community are and all of, the, all of the statistics that you've heard are, are uniquely female. Um, I, I think that, there, that for us really to think through recovery, we need to make sure that we are looking through a lens uh, that provides solutions to the people who have been most uh, impacted, and, and, it's large, and it is black and brown women. Um, there's a, a young entrepreneur known as Pinky Rednick. She's also Ward 7 resident. Um, and like Ms. Robinson mentioned, she really um, recognized the lack of, of fresh and healthy food to our community. Um, and our, our small business partners, Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development, as well as WAKIS, were helping her to expand her business, to uh, focus on catering um, and providing healthy foods and providing meals. Um, and within her community, and she was really hit hard early on in the uh, in the pandemic, 
by um, by the shutdown. Um, through her own um, ingenuity, as well as to the support of our nonprofit partners, she was able to pivot her strategy. Um, and she uh, was able to grow her business during the pandemic uh, by providing meals uh, when universities, um, university cafeterias closed to students, uh, as well as expanding her catering services to um, hospitals and essential workers. Um, so when I last checked in with her, her business is thriving. And what that means actually is twofold. One, um, Pinky hires from her community, so she's a job creator. But also, if we had lost her, we would have lost our fight against lack of amenities and access in our community. And so um, if, if we are, we are exciting, excited and continue to want to lean in to these solutions and to support folks like Pinky and our nonprofit partners. Thank you. Wow. Well, thank you uh, for that. It is a great amount of work that you're doing, uh, and the impact is tremendous. We actually have had Pinky here uh, on this uh, show. She's talked about her story. Uh, and really uplifting uh, how she made pivots uh, throughout the pandemic in order to make sure uh, she can survive, because uh, we know when we come out of this, she's going to be able to thrive. Uh, so a lot of uh, great information shared uh, with us today. I want to go to a question uh, from Facebook um, and uh, just jump in if you've got the answer. Uh, but uh, the question is just how are, uh, it says they, so our panel, uh, how are they bringing uh, local nonprofits uh, into the work? So beyond just grants, uh, is there uh, resources for capacity building uh, and partnership? So I don't know who wants to jump in on that one. I can start, and then maybe my colleagues, Tony and DeConte, can add in their perspective. So I'll just share uh, from our perspective at the Women's Foundation, uh, this is a really important uh, aspect of our grant making is to really think about how we can better partner with the organizations beyond just the check that uh, we cut, which is incredibly important. We've done a couple things. A lot of it is really on a one-on-one, -on -one, case by case basis, and it's, it's done through conversations with organizations to understand what are their needs beyond the grant that we've invested. So I'll give a couple of examples. We changed the way in which we engaged in our grant making. We essentially eliminated proposals during our emergency response effort and did all of, all of the outreach via just telephone conversations. There were some organizations who said to us, you know, that's a capacity building moment for us. We haven't necessarily written a lot of grant proposals. We'd like the opportunity to do so, but we need some assistance in doing that. And so our program team worked with those organizations that made the request to actually write a proposal to provide them with feedback and kind of coach them through that process along the way. And that's, that's kind of the first time we've done something like that. We also had a number of organizations who had other needs beyond what we've done for grant making, whether it was a need for a technology, laptops, et cetera. And we really worked with our partners to secure some donations to then provide to those organizations um, in addition to the grants that were made. And then in terms of partnerships, really thinking through, I think one of the um, 
interesting moments that we've had in this pandemic and the collaboration that Tonya talked about earlier is really having very open lines of communication with our philanthropic colleagues to be able to say, hey, did you see organization XYZ? Do you know that they're doing good work? We supported them for this, but they also need some additional support. So trying to open doors with our other colleagues to be an advocate for organizations that are looking for additional support, thinking through who else we could partner with and trying to connect the dots and make introductions for organizations. I'll only add um, that in the early months of the pandemic, we really had to target our support around direct service. Um, and so, you know, most of our, if you were not in a direct service organization, um, it, it was perhaps unlikely that you would receive some of the financial support. We then pivoted, I'd say, mid, midway, midpoint through to advocacy, um, recognizing that there were a number of efforts underway to, you know, bring more federal and state and local resources to, um, to communities. Um, I say in the, as part of the recovery, there's going to be a, a broader opportunity to do more investments in the, um, I would say, capacity building and institutional infrastructure and really thinking through ways that we can help to rebuild and strengthen um, communities, both through uh, nonprofit investments. I'll, I'll share that some of our grants um, through some of our fund holders went to small businesses. I mean, we are looking at the broadest range of community institutions and organizations that were, were impacted. Um, my hope is that um, we can continue these open lines of communication that were developed both across philanthropy, um, but also listening very deeply to what our nonprofit organizations are telling us. Um, about what people need and creating um, some level of continued flexibility. I think we would lose out as a sector if we revert back to all of our old practices and not um, continue to, to listen, pivot, and evolve um, based on the, the evolving needs of, of people in our, in, our, in our community. And I'll just quickly say that, um, you know, I've, I've learned recently that, and I love this phrase, that we as philanthropists need to focus on um, power building versus capacity building, which is often used in this, as an obstacle for accessing resources. Um, there are three ways in which, um, which we've supported power building in the D.C. market. Um, one was at the beginning of the pandemic, we um, provided greater flexibility around our funding for operations, as well as emergency funding for our nonprofit partners to switch to a virtual environment. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a real lesson learned that really small pockets of resources can have huge impact um, if there's greater flexibility around our grant making. Um, uh, we're a huge firm, um, and we have a lot of uh, a, a lot of skills across the firm as well. And we uh, uh, provide skilled volunteerism or volunteerism uh, volunteering <laughs> through um, through Service Corps. Um, and so what that does is, is that we embed our um, we embed our employees within nonprofit organizations to work on a project that's important to them. Um, and central to their growth expansion uh, as well. Um, and the last piece I will just mention is um, work that we just started with the Greater Washington Community Foundation, particularly on how 
philanthropy is showing up in, in Ward 7 and 8, and thinking through strategies that, again, uh, unbinds us from traditional philanthropy um, that really ensures that we're supporting diverse-led um, organizations that have been providing services for decades um, in that community. So it was Beverly who asked that question on Facebook. So if she's looking for the right place to go for the power building uh, that you just spoke about, where where is the best place to go? Is it the Community Foundation? Is it the uh, Washington Area Women's Foundation? Where, where's the best place to go uh, for Beverly or those watching? I'd recommend, um, of course, the Community Foundation. Uh, the, our partners at the Meyer Foundation have recently released a grant round that's really focused on power building. Um, a number of other philanthropic organizations, I'm just trying to remember. Jennifer, I'll let you speak for the Washington Area Women's Foundation, but I'd say both Meyer Foundation and the Community Foundation are places that you can go. We're working very closely in partnership with uh, Decanty around um, Award 7, 8 sort of philanthropic that our um, investments are making, um, that they're strategic and thoughtful and having an impact and really uh, deepening our impact with uh, communities that are already working on the ground. I will mention that another um, important step that we took during this, um, during this pandemic was around working with intermediaries. Uh, some of the organizations that are working in community are small organizations, as Jennifer noted. They may not have much experience in uh, applying for grant applications, but there were a number of intermediary organizations who were able to um, you know, apply for grants from the Community Foundation, for example, and move those resources to, to smaller uh, neighborhood organizations or community-based organizations that were doing work through either mutual aid um, associations or other kinds of entities. And so, again, I'm really proud that we were able to operate at an uber-high level with some of our, our larger uh, nonprofits, but also at a, um, a grassroots community level, uh, making sure that, um, you know, as many members of community were supported during this period and will be supported as we move into, um, into recovery and reopening um, in the months ahead. Jennifer, did you want to add to that or no? Okay, great. Um, so another question uh, we had is how do we measure uh, sort of the impact of more equitable investments? So when we invest uh, in women, uh, uh, run businesses, and when we invest in uh, people of color who run businesses, how do we see that impact over multiple generations? Who wants to take that one? Jennifer, you want to? I wondered if, if Conti wanted to yeah. talk about the multi-generational um, impact of equitable investments, because I think what we see, um, and I know DeConte spoke to this earlier, mm -hmm. is, you know, asset and wealth building in our communities and the disparities we see between white families and black and brown families in terms of the ability to build wealth over time, and that certainly has a tremendous impact, um, multi-generational. Um, so I'm hoping DeConte can talk a little bit more about that from the J.P. Morgan perspective. I'll share just like a, a microcosm um, piece of work that we're doing called a Young Women's Initiative, which is focused specifically on young women of color and gender expansive youth of color between the ages of 16 and 24 here in DC. Um, it is geared toward providing a 
um, an opportunity to engage in advocacy work. So setting an agenda for how DC should be investing in young women of color. Uh, it provides um, also an opportunity to do grant making. So we've set aside a small portion of our grant making portfolio where young women um, review applications that other young women of color submit, and then they make decisions about who should be awarded grants. And so it's flipping the power dynamic a little bit in philanthropy. It's putting resources into young women of color to then decide who in community should um, should be distributed those resources. And it, so it's beginning to change the perspective of who gets to be at the table, who makes decision about where dollars flow. And it's also a great um, professional development opportunity for young women of color around setting an agenda for um, policy change and advocating and really being at the table, uh, building power, building movements in our community to fight for change. So it's a slightly different take on the question, but I think really important because it's about the multi-generational aspect and recognizing folks often say youth are our future but youth are leading right now and they're leading every single day in our communities. And we're really trying to recognize that and, and lift that up in a, in a stronger way. And second piece, did yeah. you have any? Yeah. I was, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's, the, that's an excellent question. It's also the trickiest question to answer in terms of multi, uh, looking over multiple generations. Um, I think uh, absolutely, you know, the wealth building piece is really identifying anchors that allows for generational wealth, particularly we know that uh, home ownership uh, is a key indicator and, uh, and wealth builder across gen generations, also starting small businesses and that are, um, that are growing, expanding, are strong wealth uh, builders across generations. Um, in terms of measuring impact at this moment in time, which I think we need to get uh, to really nailed, at least as we see such an influx of capital around equity uh, at this moment, um, this might be a helpful tool for folks. Urban Institute uh, uh, created a tool known as the DC Equity Indicators, and it looks at some of these key uh, wealth building characteristics as well as the dynamics of neighborhoods, so access to healthy food, access to financial services. Um, and, uh, and as you can imagine, we saw significant disparities in communities uh, where uh, black, DC, black and brown DC residents um, are more concentrated. And I think at, at least at this moment, if we're talking about equity, that it would, uh, it would be a value to all of us to really try and address those geographic disparities in a really intentional and concerted way. Definitely. Uh, Tonya, did you have something on that too? I saw you reaching. Yeah, just to say that um, we, we don't know yet because we've not invested consistently or persistently enough in Black-led nonprofits or businesses or communities to know what the, the generational outcome will, will be. And in instances where um, communities have been able to, you know, um, manage through some level of self-preservation, 
um, after, you know, after redlining and all of the other uh, policies that were put in place to undo gains that were made, um, we, we've, seen, we've seen companies and individuals persist. And so just imagine if we are, um, you know, even more persistent with our investments and strategic with our investments, how, um, how that will, you know, there's, there's only the opportunity to grow. And, and much like, you know, many of our counterparts, you know, businesses and nonprofits that have invested and been invested in for many, many years, you see the outcome. You see, you know, good education and, you know, thriving businesses and thriving nonprofits. I think we, we, we can only expect that that's the, the same outcome that we will experience over generations when there is a persistent level of investment that um, to some extent meets the level of disinvestment that has happened over many years. And so I'm, I just get really excited that um, both the, the, the um, financial services world, you know, major corporations and philanthropy that were, and government, they were recognizing that when we invest with, a, uh, with an equity lens, that we all win, that we all benefit. And so I think this is just an important moment in our, in our, um, in our history, in our, um, in our lifetime to, um, to, have, to be equity focused, um, recognizing that all communities win when we invest in black and brown communities. You know, I love the way you said that. We're uh, really on the cusp of, we had a discussion last February about uh, how, we un, uh, how we erase redlining uh, from DC. And we talked about home ownership and how that will create generational wealth. And it's something that you've alluded to that we're just on the, we're probably on the first generation of equitable uh, investment in this uh, space as well. I also liked the chart that you had about pursuing an uh, excuse me an equitable recovery. Um, we uh, we are always looking for the framework by which we speak about an equitable recovery. Um, and one of the things you said that uh, it will open for some faster than others. So for DC, how should we approach this that we make sure that it opens uh, for all of us together? I'll start and then I'll, I'll, I'll quickly transition out of it. But I really think um, not keeping your keeping your foot on the uh, keeping your eye focused on the communities that are not returning to work very quickly. So even once we are able to return to our lovely downtown offices, uh, many folk are going that that the economy will lag. It will. Um, there have been, we've seen the fluctuations in, uh, in unemployment benefits and, and other um, state, local, federal benefits to individual families. These families, these individuals will need persistent and consistent um, support and investment until the economy returns to something that looks, you know, more, more like it did in January. Uh, it's just that we can't get too comfortable too quickly. I, I'm also very concerned, and I haven't fully formulated the framework around it, around um, the, uh, the consistent health challenges and loss of life that's linked to COVID-19. I don't think we've done a, so people talk about mental health, and I think that is an important um, um, area for us to make sure that we're, we're putting philanthropic uh, investment and state and local um, capital toward. But there's, for many families, they will be permanently impacted because of loss of life and because of some of the ongoing health challenges that they will experience 
having been uh, impacted by, by COVID-19. And, and so it means that our social safety net for many will have to expand for a longer period of time uh, than we might uh, have ordinarily be accustomed to. And I will just jump there in there and say that absolutely that you can't put, take your foot off the gas. Um, as we were entering into this pandemic, many of the households uh, that we serve were still trying to get over the last recession. And, and that disparity really happened and increased and accelerated in this region as, it, as, it, as uh, D.C. grew and um, at an accelerated rate and black and brown households were not a part of that. And, we're, and, and without actually greater intentionality for that uh, safety net and to really think through strategies that connect communities of color to recovery and ultimately growth, we're going to continue to see um, our communities uh, either disappear from the district or fall further behind. Yeah, and I would just add, in addition to what Tony and DeConte have said, um, I 100% agree, it can't take your foot off the, grass, the, the gas right now. And being really consistent, persistent, and intentional around those investments and applying a racial equity lens. But I would add that I think um, it's not enough to only think about direct services and the money. We also have to examine our systems, our policies, and our institutions and the kind of barriers that have been in place for decades, whether they're intentional or unintentional. Redlining is a great example of a policy practice that has disadvantaged um, communities of color for a long time. But I think those, those pieces have to go hand in hand. The investments, the money that goes into community, but it's also examining our systems, our institutions, our policies to really begin to break down the systemic um, racism that is occurring I know DC's, you know, making efforts. There's, you know, new uh, legislation where all government employees will receive racial equity training. Uh, that's a great first step, but then we just have to continue and be very, very intentional in examining both components. Absolutely. Um, so, Terry, we've talked a lot about uh, how we can work better in the philanthropic space, how we can work better in government. What's your advice to us in terms of uh, you get to work with people every day that you're helping? What's your best advice to us for how we approach our work? As these ladies have said, do not take your foot off the gas. Um, it's vital, it's very important that um, for people of color and, and underserved um, wards in the city, Ward 7 and 8, that we begin to bring some uh, financial and economic equality into um, into our neighborhoods. We, you know, people over there, they don't have as the access that they should have to medicine, to healthy, nutritious food. And so I don't want to say we're at a disadvantage, but we're at a disadvantage. And so, yeah, if we could just begin to kind of pour a little bit of that into those underserved communities, I think we would get a lot further along in the game. Well, Terry, uh, we couldn't have said it better ourselves. I saw a lot of head nodding uh, as you were speaking. Uh, so I want to thank you for uh, joining us. I want to thank the panel 
uh, for joining us as well. Uh, one of the things that I uh, wanted to highlight uh, before we end today uh, was that the uh, vaccine, uh, vaccinate.dc.gov, uh, will open tomorrow for pre-registration. Uh, pre-registration will allow those who are eligible for the vaccine now to go in uh, to give their information and then be contacted uh, when an appointment is available for them. So uh, tomorrow you can sign up on vaccinate.dc.gov uh, in order to pre-register uh, for your vaccine appointment. Now, a lot of our conversation today was about how we uh, reach those who haven't had as much opportunity. So even if you've been vaccinated or you're signed up, make sure that you reach out to a neighbor or a friend or someone who may need help uh, navigating uh, vaccinate.dc.gov. Uh, it's really incumbent on all of us to make sure that everybody understands the opportunity to get vaccinated. Uh, so that is one way that we can make our recovery uh, more equitable. So we'll ask you to go to uh, vaccinate.dc.gov tonight uh, and to see how you uh, will register uh, tomorrow. Uh, thank you all for joining us. We'll be back uh, next week for another Stemhead uh, Recovery Weekly Check-In. I uh, just want to remind everybody uh, the weather is great outside. Uh, make sure that you go uh, outside a bit. Uh, if you want to visit a streetery, please do that. If you want to uh, get takeout from that local restaurant, uh, please do that as well. But whatever you do, make sure you wear a mask, make sure you wash your hands, and continue to social distance because uh, we want to get through this, uh, but we're not through it yet. So thank you for joining us today, and be safe.